0: Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to Slice of Life Sciences. I've been uh, super eager to get today's session um, or get to it, given our guest and, and what his company has been doing, um, has done, and is continuing to do. Uh, they are pioneering tissue therapeutics. Um, I typically take this time to give a relatively lengthy overview of the person in the company, but after doing some research on Arnav, um, I'm going to keep it short and sweet and, and just dive right in. Um, so, without further ado, we have Arnav Shabra, um, co-founder of Satellite Bio, with us today, um, who's working on the next frontier of regenerative medicine, um, which has enormous potential, which we'll we'll touch on a little bit later. Um, so, Arnav, thanks very very much for for taking the time to be with us today and allowing the listeners to to hear your story and your company's story.
1: Dave, it's a pr- privilege to be here. You know, Thanks for asking me to join you today. I've actually been avidly listening to your previous episodes, kind of preparing for this one. And I have to say, I'm super excited for this conversation. I think you do a great job and I think it'll be a fun one.
0: Well, that's, that's good to hear. Thank you for that. Um, so in some of my previous episodes, you've probably noticed I'd like to start from earlier stages in your life. And, and I think this is going to be a really conversation, given how unique some of um, your experiences have been. So rather than diving right into satellite, I thought um, we'd just learn a little bit about you as the person. So if that's okay with you, I'll, I'll, I'll just kick things off. Sweet. Um, so where'd you grow up and what, what were some of the favorite things you did growing up?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, I grew up in India, you know, we grew up in a small town. And it's a small town of 1.5 million people, right? And that's considered small for India. And it was adjacent to like this big city of Delhi, which is the capital, right? So, and honestly, it was quite a fascinating experience growing up there in the 90s. Like we had very similar influences that you guys did. Like, you know, we also loved Friends, watched a lot of Nickelodeon, and we also had Beanie Babies and whatnot, as you guys did in the US. But it was also, I think, culturally very different at the same time. And... For me personally, like, and this is gonna sound a little bit weird, what I really enjoyed growing up was like solving problems. Like I literally went around the house, went around the neighborhood just looking for challenges or like how, you know, people, if someone was doing something inefficiently, I would point that out and then I would try to help fix that. And that's really like what I got enjoyment out of when I was young. And, you know, unsurprisingly, that's kind of what's stood out with for me today too, right? This is reflected in what I do at at yeah. work now. This is reflected in what I did when I was at school, and frankly, I just didn't, never took a break when I was trying to solve the most challenging problems. And um, and you know, while I'd love to say like I got some of this from my parents, who are both physicians, but at the same time, you know, I think they're very different people than I am. You know, we're similar in many ways, but in this specific way, I think I was kind of unique in my household. And so I still don't know actually where it came from, but. <sighs> You know what i would say is like taking on challenges has been kind of a big part of like my life from the beginning so
0: interesting were there was there anything unique about growing up in india that you've kind of looked back and you realized maybe at the time or now that you learned a lot from
1: yeah it's a good question you know like over the years i've tried to kind of sit down and reflect you know on my experiences growing up and tried to find those like threads that link to who i am today and what I've come to realize is that, like, a lot of the times it seems like there's random events that happen in your life. But oftentimes, if you go back and really think about it deeply, they can usually be traced back to something that was early on in your life. And I'll, I'll give you some examples specifically for myself. Um, so, like, when, when I was 12, my grandfather, you know, shared a lot of stories. And one of the stories that he shared with me was his family's move from Pakistan. And so, you know, India and Pakistan separated in 1947, yep. and there was a lot of unprecedented violence that occurred, you know, at the border. Uh, so I was, as I was growing up, you know, those Friday evening story s- sessions were basically a ritual in our house, right? And those are the steer stories that I think really stuck with me. And frankly, like, they're still a huge driver for me. Uh, and I think a way to think about it is that the partition, right, which is what we call it when India and Pakistan separated, is like kind of buried in the psyche of like most indian kids at this point who grew up in the 90s and while we were not obviously there at the same time like our grandparents were our parents were right and so our childhood was always like full of anecdotes and stories that they were telling us about how those events unfolded and i think for most people it, it affected them differently like for some people it kind of motivated them to you know Go out and achieve financial success, right? Just so they could, their families could be immune from those types of situations, right? Um, many others, like some of my friends and some people even in the popular culture space, you know, became artists and creators, right? Like if you look at the writers from Miss Marvel, that's kind of their origin story as well. Um, and for me, I think what it really did was it kind of highlighted the massive scale of human suffering mm-hmm. from a medical perspective, right? And and it kind of motivated me to think about like how can I create tools to alleviate that suffering. Uh, now some people would want to do it from a political perspective but honestly I was just way better at science than I was at politics and so for me it just made a lot a lot more sense to um, you know use that as a motivation to you know do good through science basically.
0: So that's that's like is that where the passion for science at least started and then continued and and did you I guess how long did you live in India before you came to the United States did you go to High school there or did you move to the United States for that and how did yeah, that even so come I, about?
1: Yeah no it's it's a good question so I was there till 2006 so until I was till the age of 15 so we moved here when I was in 10th grade which was kind of an awkward time honestly right because you know all the people that started in 10th grade with me had had been friends for a while yeah. right so they had been friends since middle school and even the ones that were not friends since middle school, you know, they had started in ninth grade. So it was kind of an awkward time for me to start. Uh, but, you know, I made the most of it. So I, at the time, did not know a lot of people because it was a new country for me altogether. So I did what I knew best at the time, which was kind of dive deep into the books, right? And like, think more about, you know, how can I help people using using my passion? And so I think for for many people like moving can be a huge challenge if anything for me it ended up actually being a little bit of a blessing because it gave me the space and the time right to to pursue other interests which was like you know I started as as, as we'll probably get into in a little bit you know I started doing research when I was a high school student primarily because you know I didn't know anything any, any anybody else here right so like that was the one thing I knew how to do so
0: yeah I was I was fascinated by that because I saw that in high school you publish your first paper um And on top of that, you were volunteering at MD Anderson Cancer Center. So I assume you lived nearby in in Houston. Um, I guess, how did that come about? Because that's a pretty unique getting a paper published and on top of that, volunteering at at MD Anderson in high school. So just curious what motivated you to do that and and the experience you took out of that.
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. So like my parents are both physicians. So both of them were actually working at MD Anderson Cancer Center at the time. And so I, as I mentioned, did not know a lot of people here in this country. So like I was looking for things to do over the summer, right? And so my mom was like, well, why don't you you know, come and volunteer for a little bit? And so I started volunteering. I was there for a couple of months. And then I, you know, once you're there, it is actually an incredible environment for learning because they have amazing libraries at MD Anderson that you can just kind of sit in for hours, right? And just dive deep into the books there and so once I started to do that I realized there was a lot of labs around too that were just looking for high school students because you know it's kind of a cheap way for them to get people to like help out and it was great for me too because I was super interested in research at the time and so um, you know I given that my parents were always have been physicians you know since since the 80s like I always kind of expected to end up in the med- medical field or like at least in a medical adjacent field. Um, so then, you know, at the time, it, it made a lot of sense for me to sort of continue to try to do research in that yeah. space. And so I reached out to, you know, one of my mom's colleagues and they had an open position and they were like, well, yeah, why don't you come join us and see see how it goes? And so when I started there, they gave me a project and then I really liked it. And then it, and yeah, the rest is kind of history.
0: Wow. And then so from from high school, then you went to UT Austin, um, Mm -hmm. which I also did. So I I probably wasn't as good of a student, but I'm excited to hear you're a Longhorn alumni. Um, Take me through a little bit of your your studies and kind of where when you started finding your mold and then Mm -hmm. eventually from UT, um, getting your Ph.D. at at MIT and Harvard, I believe.
1: Yeah. So. At UT, you know, like I like I've always done, right? I, I like challenges, as I mentioned before. So when I started at UT, instead of just doing what I thought I was always going to do, which was being in the medical space, right, I challenged that assumption. I wanted to make sure that that's really what I wanted to do. Yeah. So instead of jumping into a, into biology or you know biomedical engineering or something like that, I challenged that assumption, and then I started in a, in a different major altogether. So I started in mechanical engineering. And while the desire for me was just to challenge myself, like I actually feel very fortunate that I ended up doing that, right? Because today, like the grasp of those engineering methods and principles that I learned during, uh, during my time at UT, like I've, I think it has made me a much better scientist. And it frankly also just comes in super handy in my job all the time.
0: Um, oh, and so you did that just basically to ensure that what you wanted or what you thought you wanted to do was what you wanted to do?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Because I knew I wanted to end up in the biomedical space. But like, you know, that's I, I, I always felt like that was because I had grown up in a household wow. where my parents were physicians. Right. And so I just wanted to challenge that assumption. So, um, yeah, so I did mechanical engineering. And frankly, I feel super fortunate that I did that because what I did not learn during that time was any biology. However, you know, I've been able to kind of teach myself then over the last six years or actually over the last nine years now, so, when I started my PhD. And I'm kind of glad that I utilized my formalized learnings to like focus on something else, you know?
0: And then how did, so from UT, Mm -hmm. what were you thinking for the next step? And did you, was that a clear next step or did it take some thinking and time to work or how did you you get to your postdoc, I guess?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So like UT honestly was like a really good experience for me. Because I think it was a great balance between like learning, like formalized learning through classes, but also what I would call like white space exploration, right? Just having the bandwidth and the time to do what you really want to do, right? So the department at the time, I was in the mechanical engineering department. They really encouraged us to take the time outside of the classes to explore research opportunities. And there were many sort of formal and informal ways to do this. So I did it more informally, I would say, like I didn't join one of the formal programs they had. Like, I simply just cold emailed eight to ten professors one summer and simply saw, like, who responded, right? And, like, the question was, like, who's going to take an 18 year old, a chance at an 18-year-old who has no research experience? Like, in a lab, right? Because all the stuff I did at MD Anderson was really just, like, reading papers and, like, yeah. reviewing papers. So, uh, And so, yeah, two people responded and they said they had openings and they were super interested in having, you know, like someone knew that they could teach and someone that could learn from them. And so one was in a fluids lab. So, like mechanical engineering, you know, there's multiple different um, paths you can take. One of the paths is like fluid mechanics. And so one of the professors was Dr. Hedrovo. Um, and then the other was like a photonics lab led by Dr. Ben Yakar. And so after my freshman year, I ended up just picking one of those because I realized that I didn't have the bandwidth to spend time in both. And so I picked one and then I kind of focused on that for the rest of my undergrad. So that was also the lab that I ended up just staying in oh. for four years.
0: And then from from that lab, how was the transition to Cambridge?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like in that lab, right? So let us let's, let's take a step back and, you know, talk about like what I actually learned there, right? Yeah. So like in undergrad, I was working on understanding basic things, right? Basic questions, which is how do water and other fluids move through these tiny channels, right? So we were making super small channels and pushing water and other fluids through them. And then we would observe those phenomena. And what we realized was that the physics of the fluid movement on that scale, right? When these channels are like microns or even smaller than that, like it is very unique. And what happens at that scale is that you can leverage some of those fluid changes to generate energy. And so what I realized at the time was that you can generate energies at much higher efficiencies than you can do at large scale, such as with like hydroelectric power plants and such, right? So those are the types of questions, you know, I was looking at at UT. So it was was very unique and very different from what I'm doing now. Uh, So then, you know, when I came to grad school, like I was like, okay, I've learned a lot of physical principles and I've learned, you know, how fluids move through different channels. Like how can I apply that, right, to the human body? And so I joined Dr. Sangeeta Bhatia's lab, and she had been working at the intersection of microtechnology and human health, right? So how do we take engineering principles and utilize them to understand biology better? And so that actually made perfect sense for me because I had been working at that microtechnology anyway, at that scale anyway. And so I knew that piece. What I did not know is how it would apply to human health. And so I I wanted to learn that piece from her. And so that's why I joined her lab when I came to MIT. Uh, and so her lab's been developing, you know, microtechnology tools since like the 90s, right? And the idea is that we can develop these tools to understand how cells work together. Um, and so one thing, you know, her lab does, which is they fabricate these like micro liver tissues, right? So tissues that are made of multiple cell types. And then you can do this in multiple different formats, and then it enables you to study different diseases. Uh, and so her lab is studying like malaria and multiple other things. I actually took these technologies and then used them to study how the liver grows, right? And like, one thing to note is that like, if you take 70% of your liver out, right? The rest of it's gonna grow back in, in a matter of a month. But then the question arises, what are the factors that are driving this recovery, right? Like, how does it happen so robustly each time? And how can you then take those factors that you learned from that process and then how can you use those to help diseased organs recover? And so that was really kind of the crux of my PhD and something, you know, I've, I learned a lot during that process and then something that I'm also bringing to satellite now.
0: Was that something that a, a couple teammates of yours were working on or was it really primarily you leading the forefront of that?
1: Yeah, we had a lot. I, so I think Singita's lab has been, you know, running since like the late 90s, early 2000s, right? and so there's been a, a whole body of work that's been done in the liver space and so what what i like to say is like every new grad student builds upon you know something that's already been done before and so the idea was that people had shown before i even got there how to keep you know the liver cells alive and how to keep the liver cells happy in in in, in culture and so my job was now to take that those learnings and build upon those with new tools that we could bring to the table so I brought sort of experience on the microfluidic, you know, microtechnology side, and they had the experience on the biology side. So we kind of merged heads together together that way. So, yeah, initially it was just myself, but then we ended up recruiting, you know, a couple other grad students, you know, one from another lab at BU and then several other people that were in our lab itself. So it ended up being a pretty collaborative project.
0: Did, and did you Did you eventually also join a lab at Harvard Medical School, or am I wrong in that
1: Yeah, so her lab was actually affiliated across multiple different institutions, right? And so the program I was also in was also affiliated with Harvard and MIT at the same time. Okay. So that's probably the connection you're thinking of.
0: I know that that you were selected as the Forbes 30 Under 30 and also were funded by the National Science Foundation. Out of curiosity, was that during your time at UT or was it? while you were at the lab at MIT, that that kind of came about and just, I mean, that's congratulations. That's obviously amazing and just would love to hear what it means to you, but also how that came about and, and your experience from both of those.
1: Yeah, it actually came about when I was in grad school. So when I was at MIT, however, I think a lot of the times these awards, they recognize stuff that you did in the past as well. So I think for me, it was a recognition of the work that I did both in undergrad, but also when I was in high school, right? So like, you know, publishing that paper in high school has kind of stuck stuck throughout my life, right? So I think, you know, one thing I would encourage people to do is like, if you have opportunities in high school to do research and you're interested in those, right, like definitely take advantage of those because, you know, people recognize that and, you know, that recognition yeah. comes with a lot of other perks. So but I think, yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no,
0: go ahead. Go ahead.
1: I was just saying, like, I think what that's meant for me, honestly, has just been exposure, right? Which is, it's given me sort of a door to a lot of different opportunities, right? Which is people will see that and be like, okay, that's impressive. Well, let's talk to this person, right? So it's kind of opened the door for me in a lot of different situations. So like, you know, I have a pretty good network now that I can leverage. And it's it's also just been nice to, you know, be at a lot of events where, you know, you see other sort of Forbes 30 and under 30 people, and all of them are doing very cool things in totally different spaces. And so it's always super nice to be able to talk to them about what they're working on.
0: That's great. Um, with all the these experiences leading up, I guess, to this moment, did you know that you wanted to start something as the next step, did you, did, was that a gradual realization or, or I guess, how did this lead into satellite? Which we could we'll get into in a second about the genesis right. of it, but
1: yeah, it's, it's a great question. Honestly, like I don't think that was the case for me, right? Like I anticipated and even planned on staying in academia, right? Like when I started grad school, I really enjoyed research. I knew I enjoyed experimenting, right? So the grand plan personally for me was to get a PhD, you know, do a postdoc, and then become a professor, right? But I got what I would like to call you know, what I'm, I'm making up a word, which is called Cambridge, right? And the idea is that you come to Cambridge, Massachusetts with the hopes of becoming an ap- academic, and then you quickly realize, right, there's a wonderful ecosystem out there around us for doing what we love to do, but within the realm of like developing new therapies for patients, right? You know, biotech is there, venture capital is there, biopharma is there, right? And academia is there, so like you can merge and learn from all those different situations and then do what you love, but just do it in a space where you can actually develop therapies for patients. Right. So that's that's how I got sort of sucked into into entrepreneurship is I realized that there was just a lot more to Cambridge than just academia. And yeah, I think it's I, I, I think it's it happens to a lot of people around me. And and I'm glad like we have an ecosystem like this. So
0: you can copyright the term. You got Cambridge.
1: I got to trademark that now.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant, trademark. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I guess, how did the the founding of Satellite come about? Um, and what was the genesis? And, and who was the team around you? Mm-hmm. And where I guess, where'd you meet them? So just a little bit of everything.
1: Yeah. So initially, the co-founders are myself, Sangeeta Bhatia, who was my PhD advisor, and Christopher Chen. So Dr. Chen was... Um, he was not my PhD advisor directly, but he was on my committee, and so Chris and Sangeeta had been working together for a while, right? And I think to really think about satellite, you have to kind of go back into the 90s, right? So I think satellite's really been in the making, I would say, for over two decades now, and I was honestly just lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time, right? And because Sangeeta has been working on this technology for since the 90s, and Chris has been working on sort of blood vessels, which is also important for our technology since around the same time. And the two did their MD-PhDs together in the same program, the HSD program that I was in, just 20 years earlier. And so they met back in the first day of grad school, and they realized that you know they had similar interests and synergistic interests. And so they continued to collaborate as colleagues, and then they really have been working together for the last 20 years. And so their work is what kind of fleshed out Satellite's platform. And that's what we're building upon today at the company. Uh, and so, you know, I started in her lab in 2013, right? And throughout my PhD, I inve- ended up inventing a couple of technologies that helped advance satellite's platform to where it is today. And then, sort of in, you know, the late 2018, early 2019 timeframe, Sangita had been approached by a few investors, right? And, you know, they were super interested in, in talking to her about starting something new because she had just finished, a su- she had just finished sort of leading a successful company and handed it off to a an new CEO. And so at the time they were like, okay, well, what else is coming down the pike for you, right? And so, you know, she realized that I was interested. She knew that there at the time was right, you know, because BioPharma was in a very good place at the time. And so one thing led to another, and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. We ended up raising, you know, $120 million for our Series A, which, you know, was announced pretty recently, so.
0: Yeah. I saw the NASDAQ uh, had a nice, Rec- or showed some recognition. So congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you. For, for all the listeners, could you tell us a little bit about what Satellite's mission is and the impacts it can have around the world?
1: Yeah. So Satellite's mission is very simple, but powerful. And it's as follows, right? So we want to restore hope to patients and their families that are suffering from severe life threatening conditions. That's that's our mission statement. And the impact it can have is, I think, massive, right? So the way to think about satellite is to think about sort of elusive diseases, right? So there are a few diseases out there that we would call elusive. And sorry, let, let's take a step back. So there are a few diseases that are characterized by singular challenges, right? Where you can have one gene that's missing. And, you know, those are relatively straightforward because you understand what's missing, right? However, most, disease, most diseases that people um, are suffering from are complex in nature. And you know, these reflect the complexity and redundancy of human systems, right? So and these diseases are typically characterized by dysfunction and multiple levels of biology, right? So it's not just a one pathway that's missing, it's not just one pathway that's dysfunctional. There's multiple different things that are missing or dysfunctional in these cells. And so typically what happens is that cells ultimately fail, and then those organs can lead to organ failure, and then you have, you know, end stage disease that requires a transplant. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to study satellites, right? Which are basically satellite adaptive tissues. So these are tiny sort of ensembles, mixtures of multiple different cell types. And the idea is that when we put them in the configuration that we put them in, they can recapitulate the human biology that's necessary. And so you, another way to think about it is there are microorgans that we can then implant into the body and then they can provide the function that's missing uh, from the patients. And so, you know, we're going to start off our work in the liver space, right? So we're making liver satellite tissues initially, but our hope is that this can actually be a platform to basically deliver any sort of solid organ cell out there. So any solid organ, non-blood cell that you can imagine, we want to be able to deliver that successfully.
0: That's what I was going to ask. So, so the liver's the focus at the moment, but eventually it'll grow in its range down the road?
1: That's the idea, because really what we have, right, is our platform can do multiple things. It can stabilize the cells so they can function appropriately, right? It can put them in configurations so when you implant them inside of the body, they can recruit blood vessels, right? And so once you have function and you have blood vessels inside of the body, you typically get long-term persistence of these satellites. And having those two is really powerful, and it's, it's you know, that technology can then be scaled, not just to hepatocytes or or liver cells, but to any other cells as well, so.
0: Being a pioneer in the area, have you seen that the marketplace has has changed since you start, or since you embarked on the journey from the beginning? Um, Just- Yeah, you know, I I think it's a great question, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say just with, I'm thinking through, you know, taking or the ecosystem getting Established regulators pharma companies etc that's kind of where my head's at asking that question
1: yeah it's a great question you know because like back when i started my phd in 2013 right there were no fda-approved cell therapies to speak of at all right however this work has actually been happening since since the 60s uh, so i'll just give you some key milestones right so the first liver transplant happened in 1963 The first auxiliary liver liver transplant, where they showed that a portion of the liver can be put into a site that's remote to the actual one, happened in 1986. The first hepatocyte transplant, where they injected liver cells directly into the veins, happened in 1992. And so since then, you know, Sangeeta and her colleagues have been working on the liver for over two decades. But I think what really made satellite possible, right, kind of in the commercial sense, is that a CAR-T cell therapy finally got FDA approval in 2017, right? It helped the regulators and the reimbursement agencies sort of understand the requirements and a lot of the pricing models that are associated with these therapies. And so that's really what I think um, coalesced at the right time for us and then you know made us, us and the investors, have a lot of confidence in this technology.
0: Um, and And the company was founded in 2019, did you say?
1: Yeah, 2019 is when we incorporated, incorporated, but we we started operations in like 2020, so.
0: Having, and as you mentioned, raising the $120 million, I assume your company's growing and growing quite rapidly. Um, What's your day-to-day role? Kind of what are you helping with now as you're establishing your executive team, whatever it may be?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So you know this kind of being my first company right i had to kind of learn a lot on the job right and so for the first my first five months or so right there were only five of us so we all had to wear different hats and at the time you know i was doing pretty much all things possible You can imagine, right so you know i was setting up the lab you know i was buying lab equipment i was you know helping with recruiting i was you know helping with experiments i was in the lab i was you know helping with you know, fundraising, et cetera. So like pretty much every single possible thing you can imagine at a company, you know, I was at least involved in some way, shape or form. Uh, since then, you know, we've been lucky to have a healthy fundraise and we've been able to hire a lot of great people. So we've actually hired about 42 other people other than me. So we're at actually at 43 people now, I think. Amazing. And what's that allowed us to do is to actually have, you know, fu- different functions in the company. And so where I've landed right now is I'm leading our research team. And so, um, you know, you can imagine in a sort of early stage biotech company that's focused on advanced cell therapies, you know, there's going to be departments that are focused on developing those therapies, right? So manufacturing them and improving those manufacturing processes. But then there's also a department that's focused on the earlier stage before that, right? So... So I'm currently serving as the vice president of research, right? So this includes pretty much all the early stage discovery work and anything to do with sort of novel and cutting edge science, right? Will be led by me on the R and D side. And my group currently is around ten people right now, which is about a quarter of the company. And so we have a couple more open positions. So we're hoping to get to around twelve by the end of the year. So
0: from the from the days where you're five people to to now being Significantly larger. Is it? Did it go the way you thought it was going to go? The vision you had in mind, or were you taking it day by day? I imagine it was a. It's been a roller coaster of a ride seeing the company grow that much.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we wanted to do all the planning possible from the beginning, right? Because when you're starting a company, you want to make sure that you know you have a two year and a five year plan, right? And but honestly, because we were just five people back then. We had no bandwidth whatsoever, right? And so we ended up taking in mostly day by day, I would say. And I think, I think it actually ended up teaching us a lot, right? I learned a lot about sort of how to manage things operationally in an environment that's changing constantly, right? I learned a lot about how to sort of pitch into functions that I had no idea what to do from the beginning, right? Like how to pick up things on the job as quickly as you need to. Um, also just learned a lot about fundraising, which I think is a unique skill set that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't have it, but I think, you know, the more times you can go through it, the, the better you get at it, just like any other job. Right. So I think fundraising is something that I feel like I picked up along the way too. So
0: Any particular challenge, or I guess, what is the biggest challenge throughout your learning curve early on? If you can pick one, I imagine there's been a plenty of moments that you've learned and had to figure things out but
1: yeah it's a good question i think people have different challenges right so i think you know i was trained well scientifically so like you know my pi sangeeta trained me well to do on the scientific pieces but there's a lot more than just science to be able to run a company right and so those are the things that i did not quite pick up uh, during my phd but things i've had to learn on the job right so as my CEO Dave often reminds me, you know, to be a successful leader, you have to win both the hearts and the minds of the people, right? And I think I knew how to win the minds of the people, but not quite the hearts at the beginning, right? So I think it's been a constant journey for me, sort of, you know, building more rapport on the people side, and you know, just making sure that we have a culture at the company that people really want to come to work, right? And people really want to work hard at, right? Because As you know in startups it's going to be a ton of work it's going to be a ton of late nights and you have to make sure that people are bought into the mission and vision of the company and so that's been sort of the learning process for me which is how do you get people to buy into those right and then how do you get people to then you know be self-motivated um throughout their tenure here so
0: yeah have you have you developed or has have you and your team developed any company values that, have, that are key components to who satellite is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we have what I would say three key pillars of our values, right? So number one is we're deeply patient committed. So we always think about the patient, right? So like if we're doing any, if we're adding any new function, right? If we're adding any new sort of indication, let's say to our platform, right? We want to make sure that there's a direct connection to the patient at the end of the day. Um, number two is because we're engineers, right? A lot of us are at least, and a lot of us are scientists and biologists. Like we actually relish doing hard things well. And that's not just, that's not just on the science side, but also on the operational side and the people side, right? So it's an important pillar for us. And then the last is, I think we, what we like to say is we harness the powers of an inclusive environment. And generally what that leads to is authenticity, courage, tenacity, and integrity. Um, And, you know, that's inclusivity across a lot of different dimensions Mm -hmm. right so you can think of inclusivity across race and gender but also inclusive inclusivity across you know scientific thought inclusivity across you know people's backgrounds people's experiences etc and so we really believe and encourage sort of an environment where people from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds are able to contribute and are able to sort of you know put forth their ideas and be listened to
0: what excites you the most as you look ahead
1: Yeah, you know, I think, the as I mentioned, a lot of us are very driven by the patient aspect of it. And so I think what I'm super excited about is, like, seeing that first signal, positive signal, in our first patient, right? And we're not there yet, right, because we haven't filed an IND. But I think when we see that signal, it's really going to demonstrate that this technology can work effectively, right? You know, we've done a good job in mice, but at the end of the day, the goal is not to cure mice, right? It's to cure human patients. So... I want to make sure we can get there, and I hope we can get there in a safe way and in a way that can actually help those patients um, that are suffering from a lot of different conditions right now. So.
0: Look, this is this has been an uh, an amazing conversation. So I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time um, to share both your story and Satellite's mission. I I always do like to ask uh, founders this question, and I, I think for you I'm I'm going to ask it a little bit more generally. Um, Just given your early stage life, kind of what you accomplished early on and, and into grads or undergrad, into grad school, into founding a company right out of college. What advice would you give not even just another first time founder, but anyone as they're kind of trying to figure out what their passion is and going about life wherever that may be for them?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think what I would say is like become comfortable with the unknown, right? Especially if you're starting something new, you're never going to have all the information you need. You're always going to be forced to make decisions without fully understanding you know, every single piece. And that's just something you have to get comfortable with. But you also have to get good at that, right? Like when do you make a decision versus when you keep seeking more information? Because honestly, in science, there's always more information you can gather but sometimes you just have to be able to call it. And you know, sometimes you just have to make the decision that you have the information you need and now is the right time to, to make the call. And so I think for early stage founders, especially sort of in the biotech space, you know, what I would recommend is striking that balance um, early on between sort of a product with a good foundation versus you know, making sure that you know you're still moving at a pace that's 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 steady and making sure that you're meeting you know the milestones that you need to so
0: there you go well thank you so much i really appreciate it arnav and uh i hope you enjoyed and i i'm sure that the listeners are going to love this so thank thanks again and and can't wait to obviously follow follow satellite in your career
1: thanks so much for having me on david it's been a pleasure